We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Out there in archaeology podcast land, this is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We're going to be hearing from Rock Art Podcast episode 54. This is the deep dive into the mysteries of one of the most remarkable and extraordinary rock art in the world. Some of the largest prehistoric paintings. Deep dive into the mysteries of the great mural rock art in Sierra de San Francisco. I'm going to talk about my personal experiences, what we think we know about that rock art, and the adventure and discoveries. See you on the flip-flop, gang. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. And since you're hearing my voice, that means Alan's the guest today. <laughs> so, Can you imagine? I'm Chris Webster. I'm the producer on the show. And this is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the uh, guest on the show today of sorts. That's right. And Alan, we mentioned it in the introduction, but why don't you go ahead and introduce our topic for today? So this is the 54th Rock Art Podcast. And I've noticed that one of my research areas and research interests has really not been covered by anyone of our interviewees or guest scholars. So what we're going to do today is do a deep dive into some of the mysteries of what's called the Great Mural Rock Art of Baja, California. This is the uh, some of the largest prehistoric paintings in the world, and they've been uh, a source of uh, a research interest and a source of pleasure for the California Rock Art Foundation. We've uh, had multiple cultural tours 
and a number of our colleagues, including board members, have traveled to this area and are actively pursuing various research interests in this remarkable expression of prehistoric rock art. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're going to take a deep dive into learning a bit about these remarkable paintings and uh, what they represent, who fashioned them, mm -hmm. how old they are, and what was involved with their production. And uh, some of the uh, sidebar adventures in terms of even getting to see them. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll begin anew. All right. So why don't we start right there and, and just tell us where these are and how you can even get to them. Cause you've been out to visit this site and it, it's not something you can just drive up to. No, not uh, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. I got interested in this from a colleague of mine, sponsor, researcher, and a remarkable woman who's been doing the studies on Great Mill Rock Art of Baja California for 50 years. She's been going down to the peninsula of mm -hmm. Baja California about twice a year. She's in her 80s now, and she's been doing this for the last 50 years. And the only way to access this part of the Baja California peninsula, as there is, there's no roads, absolutely no roads into this area where the great mule rock art is most prolific. It's in a place called the Grand Canyon of Mexico. And the reason it's called the Grand Canyon is because it has some of the most precipitous terrain you're ever going to find. It's in an area that is exceedingly dry, one of the driest areas, certainly in the peninsula. It rarely rains and there are no roads. So with that in mind, the way to get in there is typically on the back of a mule with your luggage or gear by some uh, burrows. And there are trails about as wide as my arm that you uh, travel on. And the terrain is extremely precipitous. It is all volcanic and very, very rugged. And uh, cuidado en peligroso, which is Spanish for yeah. uh, be careful and dangerous. <laughs> and so the, uh, the mules know how to do this. They seem to be very sure-footed. Horses will not make it. They It tears up their feet and destroys them. Horses don't make it well there, but mules do. And then the uh, burrows themselves are are somewhat happy going right along there. But the uh, really the best way to, how would you call it, travel in this area is on the back of a mule. Hmm. So that's the way it's done. It's also an area that's very, very, very thinly populated. The only places you have uh, these little pueblitos, little tiny towns of maybe at most a handful of families, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 people at most, at very most, is where there's a little bit of water and uh, they might have a, a little ranchito, a small little ranch, but they're uh, far afield and um, there's, uh, you know, no services per se. There's no, no telephones, mm -hmm. there's no... Um, you know, no electricity, no water, nothing like that. So all those types of conventional services have to be um, sidebarred and they run them on generators or solar panels or what have you. So wow. we're talking about uh, definitely off the grid, very much <laughs> off the grid. And the people that live there, live there, I think, by choice, but uh, 
they're a very insular place. It's just, in the past, it's been insular, and even to this very day, it's extremely insular in the sense that uh, the resources are very thin and not very prolific, and the country is very, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very thick, uh, you know, desert environment that's uh, quite precipitous. Quite beautiful there, and um, but rather uh, treacherous. I would call it mm-hmm. treacherous. Now, of course, the vaqueros, the uh, the caballeros that have been raised there, think this is uh, just you know the the bee's knees, as it were. You know, this is this is fun time for them because they were raised there, and <laughs> this is like falling off a log. They don't, you know, they don't see this at all about being in any sort of you know danger or or any kind of. Uh, it's just a fun thing. You know, they mm-hmm. ride their their steads there, and they they uh, have done this their whole lives, and they they know exactly how to round up the mules and get the burrows going and uh, sleep out on the range and just enjoy the natural environment. But to a gringo, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it um, <laughs> it is it is pause for concern, and I'll I'll explain a lot further. How's that? So. Before we get too much further, I'm curious, you know, with this being such a remote area and and few people living out there, who, for lack of a better way to say this, owns and controls access to this site? It's all done through the really the state the state of, of, of Mexico. It's the country of Mexico. And there is a governmental mm-hmm. entity called INA, I-N-A, that uh, you must get a permit to go in and see these remarkable paintings. And so uh, you stop in Loreto, you sign an agreement, you pay a fee, and uh, typically you've arranged in advance and reserved that. And you also go with a, a registered docent or a liaison and a company that has permission mm-hmm. to take these kinds of uh, adventures and uh, field trips, natural history, prehistory tours into this uh, rather challenging country. Okay. Okay. Well then, so let's talk a little bit more about the area then. I like really setting the stage. I mean, you've mentioned how difficult it is to get there, uh, how, you know, how, how treacherous it is to get there. With this being like one of the most significant sites, like you said, of, of this type, I mean, in this hemisphere, what else is in the area? What else is around there? Is there anything else that compares? Are there smaller sites that are similar to this, smaller panels? Or is there anything, is this just incomparable and it's a unique uh, example on the landscape? The area is a UNESCO World Heritage location. So in other words, these particular panels, paintings, are some of the largest, if not the largest, in the world. And some some of the best preserved paintings Mm -hmm. of this sort anywhere on the planet. And so people will come from all over the world mm. to see them. And uh, no, there's one, there's one overwhelming style that uh, appears. And uh, there are petroglyphs, there are rock drawings that exist. But I, uh, for the most part, I think the biggest draw is, in fact, these unbelievable, remarkable paintings that mm-hmm. uh, have riveted the attention of rock art enthusiasts all over the world for, I would say, many, many decades. There was originally uh, only mm-hmm. in the back, the, I'd say the 1950s, 1960s, when they were actually discovered and, and uh, identified 
sort of by accident through some uh, individuals that were adventurers and they went down there in, in a Piper Cub, some of the private planes and landed. And as they began to tour, they found more and more and more of these supernaturally wonderful places. And uh, a book was published and uh, Life magazine had uh, some cover stories about it. And the rest is history. Hmm. The greatest density of these paintings, the, the greatest mm-hmm. profusion and some of the, maybe the highest quality in some ways or the the, the some of the, the centerpiece of them is an area called the Sierra de San Francisco. Okay. So it's in the Montañas or the Sierra de San Francisco. and But they are scattered throughout uh, hundreds of miles in the interior of Baja mm. California in central Baja. And so to get there takes, um, I would say, a, a good day's journey on the back of a mule to get to even <laughs> one, one of these particular places. And you wow. have to go up and down the canyons. It's about a 3,000 foot jaunt. So in other words, you're going down, 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 and you go up, up, up. And I'd say you're on the back of a, of a mule for, let's say, four, five, six hours or so, maybe seven, before you actually mm-hmm. get to one of these particular sites. A few of them have been formally uh, improved in the sense of having some sort of uh, access, meaning, um, let's say, a wooden platform is uh, uh, occasionally available on a couple of the sites, but most not. Only for one of the, I'd say, grandest or most visited sites is there any sort of public outreach or professional representation. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you've got to somehow drag your body up the side of a very tortuous cliff face <laughs> <laughs> to get into these uh, rock shelters. And they mm-hmm. are all rock shelters that are volcanic rock shelters. And they're on okay. these, the canvas, the rock canvas is not something that um, you would expect. It's in these uh, rock shelters and these precipitous canyons. Many, many of the images are typically life size or much larger. Sometimes they're two or three times the size of an actual image. What's depicted are people or anthropomorphic beings. Uh, They'd say they look like uh, humans, uh, you know, actually human beings, men, women, and children, and then enormous animals as well, mainly deer, but also bighorn sheep, and also a panoply of other zoomorphic figures, animals that are in the area, including many that are found on the coast as well. Hmm. So here's all of that. And this rock canvas that they're on they're on the ceilings and the upper lips of these volcanic rock shelters. And this uh, subject matter, of course, is patterned. There's a consistent inclusion of these humans, these men, women, and children, and animals. And then uh, sometimes there's spears and spear-like lines that are uh, associated with them as well. Mm-hmm. They're in red, black, and white. And they're multiple layered. There's many, many episodes of these paintings superimposed over one another. So it's a, uh, it's rather overwhelming when you see them. It's, it, it kind of has a chaotic imagery that, um, uh, you know, overwhelms one. You look at the paintings and you turn around and you look out to where you are. It's actually gorgeous. It's covered with desert vegetation. There's, yeah. 
you know, kind of uh, uh, these these palm trees that are there. And you don't know where you are. You, you, should you look in at the beautiful vista or should you look at the painting? Is it the painting or the vista, the vista, the painting? <laughs> so so it's, a, it's, it's a very supernatural kind of a flavor in terms of being at these places. It's very, very dramatic. Epic is not even the word for it. It's just, it's just some of the most incredible rock paintings or rock art that's to be seen in the world, I have to tell you. Okay. Well, I think on that note, let's take our first break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about this. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcription. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ROCKART. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to episode 54 of the Rock Art Podcast. And we are talking about, well... Great rock art and rock paintings down in Baja, California, someplace I have I really always wanted to go. And even being from the West Coast, man, I didn't know anything about that area. I thought it was just a part of California, you know, when I was younger. <laughs> I didn't know it was part of Mexico. <laughs> it's got California in the name. Who knew? <laughs> it's rather remarkable. And, and, and both in Alta and Baja, California, we have um, some of the most incredible rock art in the world. So it's quite a blessing. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, in the first segment, we talked about what the setting looks like, how to get there, a little bit about what the the actual rock paintings, pictographs, if you will, look like as well. Some of the subject matter, which I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more a little bit later. But let's put this in time now. Uh, we've got a place for it. Let's put it in time because something that can often be done is uh, when you have existing pigments, on a surface, those can sometimes be dated, like directly dated. So A, has any of that been done? And B, using various methods, what does this site or these this time period, I guess this style, date to? Well, this particular expression of rock art is, again, one of the more controversial elements is its age. They have dated it using direct dating on the pigment, and they've gotten some rather old dates in the five, six, and seven thousand year old range. 
These are radiocarbon mm. carbon wow. assays. And they've also got now these sites themselves. This is unusual. Besides being rock art sites, they're habitation sites. And so each one of these rock shelters often has been excavated. And so we have corollary dates, both for the projectile points and the radiocarbon dates. And they don't seem to match. The dates that they, they've gotten for the pigment seem to be a bit too old. Mm-hmm. And I think that most of this rock art, I think, would date between, let's say, 5,000 and 1,000 years ago in that realm and I think I think some of the okay. dates might be a little bit off, but the archaeological dates, and there are many, seem to peg it to that period. Let's say from about a thousand to four or five thousand years ago, which is still a nice range. So again, mm-hmm. it appears to me that a lot of this is middle to late archaic, as they would call it, and uh, the kinds of rock art that we're seeing, and the kinds of religious and ceremonial expression seems to fit within that same complex. Yeah, that's good. And I I was wondering about the dating, you know, with these being rock shelters and this place being continuously inhabited for, I mean, thousands and thousands of years. Do you think some of the carbon 14 dating has been impacted by like later fires and things like that in the rock shelters and, you know, soot and, and just, just contamination from current an existing use of the area? You know, the area is not used to any great extent. There's really no recent uh, occupation. Okay. One of the sad stories is that when the missionaries went in to uh, work with the native people, and they did that rather early because this is Baja, California, mm-hmm. the um, religious expression in those uh, missions started about the 15th and 16th centuries. And uh, because of the exotic diseases and the low population densities, eventually, for the most part, the entire native population of this area is extinct. I mean, there's no one remaining that are uh, descendants that could call themselves ethnically affiliated directly to the uh, inhabitants of this area. I'm sure there's some that have some, you know, uh, genetic material, but for the most part, we have a, a bit of a disjoinder and a disconnect with trying to see any of the descendants of uh, this amazing artistic tradition. They're called they're called Kochimi, and they're human Y U M A N uh, speakers, and they uh, they are ethnographically described, and there is some tremendously good information about them ethnographically because they were met with some of the early Jesuit priests who wanted to document their indigenous life ways and etc. But they didn't have the longevity and they were unable to withstand the um, disease vectors, the exotic diseases. And so that they went, mm-hmm. uh, they became, their numbers diminished and eventually they, uh, they became what people call it as extinct. There's, uh, I don't think any living Kochimi natives that exist uh, anywhere in in Baja California. So the people who live there in that in the relative area of these sites now, they moved in later, right? Or or they moved in when when the other um, when the Kochimi went extinct, for lack of a better word. Well, the native there are no natives there. They're they're all you know uh, you would call them they're they're uh, Mexican Americans that uh, you know are are the mixtures of the Spanish and the Uh Native Americans 
and they would be of Mexican heritage. So the Cochimi, in essence, were no longer present. Got it. So again, there's a, a bit of a population replacement. Plus, you could probably count on a few hands the numbers of people that live in this area today. I'll bet it's only, mm-hmm. only as I said, each village, minor village, might be 50, 60 people at most, at most. And uh, they're widely scattered. And so mm-hmm. you have this very thinly populated area that has very little rain, very little water, very little way in the resources. And the challenges that were faced by the native people are now faced again by the uh, Mexican uh, people who try to live there and you know, eke out a very thin existence. Their kinds of, you know, culture mm-hmm. is based on goat herding, the creation of cheese and, and, and goat meat. And, um, and then in some cases, a little bit of a vegetable garden. And really that's it because there's nothing else that they can really do down there based on sort of the, the natural resources that exist. So that whole cultural life way, again, is one that has to be adapted to the stark and rather challenging nature of the environment. Okay. Well, so going back to the the native peoples that did used to live there. Yes. Is there any indication of, you know, trade and cultural exchange with some of the mainland isn't really the right word because Baja California is not an island, but it may as well be because you got to <laughs> get around that big, right. uh, that big sea just to, get, just to get over to the mainland, so to speak. Is there any indication of any cultural influences or connection with, say, the, you know, the Maya or, or anybody else in like mainland Mexico or even, you know, the southern what became the southern United States? I'm sure there was some sort of uh, interface or exchange or, or knowledge between them. But what we're looking at here is a rather autochthonous, if you like that word, insular culture mm-hmm. that developed on its own and thrived for hundreds, thousands of years and then sort of uh, mired away for whatever reason appears to have, you know, not perhaps not be, hmm. not become extinct per se, but certainly diminished towards the uh, tail end of its expression. When the mm-hmm. Jesuits went in there and, and asked the natives about these paintings, they really didn't know much about them. And they, uh, you know, said that they were fashioned by uh, some sort of other culture entirely or some sort of supernatural beings. Mm-hmm. But that being said, there was, you know, information and other data that comes to play about the rituals, the religion, the ceremonies, the engagement with this. And in fact, there is a a very robust record of the kinds of cultures and the kinds of activities and the nature of what these paintings may have been all about uh, based on the anthropological studies and the Jesuit, the missionary accounts of what the natives had said and how they practice their life ways. So you have been obviously to these sites a number of times and you've done some some research down there. What's your, we're going to get into interpretation now. I'm going to ask that question. And interpretation of rock art is notoriously difficult because, you know, it's not just so cut and dry without having the worldview of the people who created it. It's very difficult to understand 
perhaps what the purpose, so to speak, of the drawings was. Sometimes it's art for art's sake, but, you know, not all the times <laughs> with Native American rock drawings and, and pictographs and petroglyphs. So, so what is some of the interpretive ideas behind the current thinking uh, about this, these uh, sites? Well, let's, let's try and um, step back a little bit and then I'll provide the data to sort of begin to sort of paint that picture. Okay. The subject matter of these paintings is rather remarkable as well. The, the particular panels are enormous. And what they show is this absolute unbelievable expression of movement. The animals are on a move. They're, they're like hmm. running, for, running for their lives. And they're running across the rocks. And it looks like they're, they're shooting up into the sky. Okay. <laughs> so there, so there's that. So you get these animal cavalcades that are just unbelievable. They show movement and motion and liveliness and all of that. So imagine you've got these deer and these bighorn sheep, but you also have a lot of these liminal animals. Those are the animals that live both in the, let's say, the terrestrial or sky world and the water world. So you get those as well. The fish and the rays etc. Mm -hmm. But then you also get these odd figures that are absolutely enormous that are, um, let's say one and a half, two times natural. These are uh, obviously humans or, you know, human-like figures. They're painted in red and black and they're gendered. You can see that some are female, some are male, and others are sub-adults, children. And Many, many, many of them, and this is something I'm, I'm obsessed with, of course, is they all have these uh, adorant postures. Now, adorant means that their hands are often aloft towards the sky. Okay? So imagine all of this okay. as a portrait, and uh, that's what we're seeing. And so one, um, of course, was greeted by this wondrous picture or panels or, or uh, you know, tapestries of paintings. And they were absolutely mysterious. And people were, you know, dumbfounded by this, these remarkable images. So once we learned to uh, find out more about the Kochimi themselves, mm -hmm. it began to make some sense. So as we dug deeper into the ethnography, there was a remarkable culture of uh, native people called the Cochimi. They were thinly populated. They uh, were foragers, hunters and gatherers. They uh, lived off the land, both uh, plants and animals. And their um, main chiefs or, mm -hmm. or village leaders were, of course, uh, medicine men or women, shamans, and that's probably a good terminology, and uh, they painted their bodies, black and red, and they were covered with feathers and other adornments. And they had a, a, an interesting and very remarkable uh, ritual or ceremony that was done annually to revere the dead. Revere the dead and memorialize them in a mourning ceremony. And hmm. this was uh, a unique expression they would curate or collect the hair of the dead 
and they would make cloaks, hair cloaks that the shamans would wear. And uh, the shamans would then uh, use those hair cloaks in their ceremonies and they would uh, smoke the native tobacco, go into trance, look like they were, you know, uh, falling asleep or dead to the world. And they would report that they uh, traveled in their altered states of consciousness or trance up to the heavens and brought down the ancestors and were able to uh, bring their uh, conversations or talking to them and have them converse with hmm. or, or communicate back to those relatives or those who had passed. They would also uh, have uh, three-dimensional images to uh, revere, and they'd also go up to the heavens and bring down the rain, since rain was such a remarkably important element to them. That there were some of them that specialized in bringing down the rain. So needless to say, all of this was so unusual, so remarkable, and so singularly mysterious or, you know, or, or unusual in the world that um, it was a, riveted for the anthropologists to under, try to understand what was going on here. Wow. Okay. Well, I think we'll use that opportunity to take a break so we can try to understand what's going on here. And <laughs> we will be back in <laughs> just a minute. <laughs> Thanks. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the third and final segment of the Rock Art Podcast, episode 54. And... Obviously, we've been talking about these uh, this amazing rock art down in Baja, California, a part of Mexico. And, you know, Alan, we talked about interpretation in the last segment. I'm just wondering, we, we need to look a little deeper into the symbolism that's here, the actual images that are there, and, and how this relates to, you know, daily life and religion to the people that, that made them. And of course... That can be somewhat impossible given our worldviews are completely different. The people don't exist anymore. So it's not like we can ask them. And it's just how do we go about having a better understanding of this? Because it sounds like there isn't also like a really correlate. There's no corollary anywhere else in the world. You know, this is a very unique type of thing. It's a, it's a very unique setting and it's a very unique uh, stylistic set of drawings. So how do we go about really understanding what all this means? Well, you're, you hit the nail on the head in some ways because it is a very unique uh, expression. Uh, it's a very uh, 
unusual religious uh, pattern. One of the anthropologists, archaeologists, is named uh, Highland, and he named it the Peninsular Ceremonial Complex. And what they found hmm. was there's this assemblage of material culture objects that are ethnographically documented. And once we begin to understand that, that we, we can make sense out of it. It was certainly the intention of part of this, these, this repertoire, these, these paintings were done by the uh, shamans. They must have. And they must have had some sort of way to paint either on some sort of scaffolding or some connection because the, the ceilings on these are 30, 40 feet above the, uh, the element of the terrestrial world. Wow. And so, uh, and, and what they've told us is they used wands of feather and human hair. They used bull roars, deer hoof rattles, these uh, smoking or sucking pipes of stone and clay, the effigy figures, the wooden tablets, the human hair capes, they call them rain capes. In, in other words, all of this regalia and associated ritual stuff is about uh, increased rights. It's about rain. It's about uh, bringing back the lives of the dead and connecting to the ancestors who they can pray to and communicate with. It's also about perceiving the animals and the natural world as kin, as kinship, as part of their connection to the natural environment and perceiving that a shaman, a religious leader, can actually ride a deer or other animals and escape to the sky world and bring down the rain or bring out the ancestors and have this rush of energy coming from the terrestrial world to the celestial realm, going from the divine to the mundane. Hmm. And it's all about this cyclic it's called ascent and descent. Uh, it's cross-culturally all over the world about shamanism and about the nature of understanding how to deal with uh, sort of a, uh, you know, a catastrophic or crisis or an unpredictable environment in a way that one can enforce and connect with the deities that rule their realm. And so... That's what we're seeing here. We see that these these uh, lineage heads, these shamans, were uh, well recognized with Kochimi uh, sacred narratives. They also were responsible for bringing down the deceased ancestor spirits, and they painted for the celebrants in these rituals that were done during the aggregation times. And in turn, they depicted either themselves as shamans. And their postures, those mm -hmm. hands arised, show a supplication or a prayer. It's an adoration posture asking for the blessings of their deities and of their ancestors who are intermediaries to their deities and hoping for some largesse, rain, food, fertility, long-standing lives, the ability to get on in an area like this, which is so chancy, so catastrophic, so unpredictable, so difficult. You can't imagine how unpredictable the rain 
is out there and how difficult it is to eke out a living. Oh. The, uh, the native population, if they procured one or two deer a year, they were considered doing well. <laughs> wow. That's, that's about all they got. They had to uh, live off the, the natural world, but in certain times, they could get the fruit of the cactus. And when that occurred, it was the aggregation mm -hmm. time because the fruit was so prolific, they could eat till they were sick <laughs> with, the, with the fruit and their whole physiology would change. They said they, they turned pink and red and every color of the rainbow and they, um, they enjoyed this very special time. So it's about earth renewal. It's about connecting with the celestial sphere of their, their uh, divine appointees. And it's, a, it's, an, it's, again, an intermediary relationship. And you see that in the pictures painted on the rocks. You really do. You get this overwhelming feeling that it's about life and about renewal and about prayer and vitality. Because the, the emotions or motions of those animals are, are so overwhelming that it uh, really does sort of take one's breath away. Well. That sounds amazing. Sounds like something everyone should see. And I want to leave some time in this last segment to actually talk about that because you have you have been on and you have led tours down to this area. So what are some ways that if somebody wants to see these for themselves, that they can actually do that? And, and we can even maybe talk about costs a little bit if you um, have that at hand. The California Rock Art Foundation has been doing trips out there for quite a number of years now. And we've twinned with a company that's been doing this for about 25 years. So mm -hmm. in the spring and fall of next year, we're going to be having a, a short trip of about uh, five to 10 days. And we'll see a lot of the remarkable paintings. And uh, it runs in the neighborhood of a couple thousand dollars to, uh, to do okay. these kinds of tours. And, and it's a first class situation where the, you know, you're taken care of all the foods involved, you get it. You have to get on on the back of a an animal and a quest. You know, you have to do the <laughs> do the the baggage and the mula. Oh, mula! Hey, <laughs> that's that's what you say to the mule to get it to go. You know, and nice. uh, it's rather hilarious. So one of my one of my sidebar stories is when I uh, started all this whole ring ding thing. They said, "Oh well, this Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Yes, you obviously, you know." well, well toured an adventurer worldwide and you must be a, you know, a first class equestrian. I said, oh yes, of course. And so they said, well, you, here's your mule and here you go. I said, well, last time I was on a four footed creature, I was eight years old at, at Knott's Berry Farms on a mule, you know, so they, they laughed at that. So they, they, they introduced me to the mule and I got on, but the mule knew I was, I was rather green and I was, a. Uh, you know, not, not very savvy. So, yeah. but it, I, I learned it very quick and the, and the, and the mules seem to know where they need to go. So they didn't have to teach them, but it, I, I was taught how to be a, a caballero and a, and a corazon vaquero. So the heart of the, the heart of the <laughs> natural world. And when you're down, when you're down there, I don't know, it, it's, it's such a grand adventure. It's really even hard to describe because it is such a beautiful place and you are seeing such remarkable imagery and experiencing uh, a grand adventure. It's not like anything you could ever imagine doing 
we're mm. seeing because this is the some of the premier most remarkable uh, rock art in the world when i say it's you know first class world class rock art i mean that um you know the the powers that be have emblazoned it with their imprimatur as um as a world class location a conservation area to be preserved and uh the Mexican government takes it very seriously. They have certain people that they have appointed to be docents and representatives and liaisons, and they protect these sites. So they, hmm. they visit them, they see them, they uh, make sure that they are protected, that there is no vandalism or any sort of uh, you know, activity that would be considered illicit. And they are um, extremely cautious and conservation minded because they know how, how sensitive and important and, and uh, remarkable and what treasures these images are. So they take it yeah. extremely seriously. Wow. In, in fact, in, in, in a way they are, uh, you know, heads, head and shoulders above the, the North, North Americanos, you know, in the North, in the United States, because mm-hmm. they are taking the visitation to these special places extremely seriously and they've set up the uh, representation from the villagers those little small pueblitos as like the small pueblos uh, and they ask for people that will be able to lead these tours or visit those tours and monitor those you know those paintings to make sure that they're preserved that nothing goes Mm -hmm. wrong that the uh, individuals are are operating in a way that is uh, respectful of these these sites that are world class. Wow. Okay. Well, anything else you would like our audience to know before we end this podcast? Well, if you if, if anybody wants to go down there and see these remarkable places, certainly uh, check the uh, carockart.org websites and uh, you'll uh, meet with mm-hmm. Ryan Gerstner, who is a individual who's been down there several times and uh, You'll take a look at some of the beautiful cinematography that he's done on his former tours, and he'll give you a glimpse of what these sites look like and what it's like to be riding a mule and having burrows behind you (laughs) (laughs) and going down a canyon that's uh, 3,000 feet deep. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Well, the California Rock Art Foundation is always linked in our show notes, so you can find it on uh, pretty much any one of the episodes for the Rock Art Podcast. And I think with that, uh, go check out the website and see if it's something you could uh, get interested and want to do. And and I think you guys have a tour coming up soon, you said, here in the fall. Is it full? No, no. We've we've had a couple of reservations, but no, it's still still available. I think okay. we only have a, a total of six slots, so I think there's a, a handful of, of positions still available. Okay. And uh, it's all inclusive. They, yeah. Uh, we'll provide you with uh, food, food, et cetera. So, yeah, enjoy. Okay. It's um, awesome. Rather, rather amazing. <laughs> Th- thanks for the opportunity to share the adventure. 
Absolutely. And, and thanks Alan again for telling us all about this. And again, if you're listening to this in real time in October, the beginning of October, uh, 2021, then yeah, head over to the California rock art foundation. You might be able to get on one this fall. Otherwise they're doing these, uh, relatively frequently throughout the year. So take a look and see when the next one is and get signed up because space is limited. I can't imagine taking big parties down there along these narrow mule trails is a good idea. So (laughs) it's probably better with fewer people. That's right. All right. Well, with that, we'll end this podcast and we will be back next week with uh, more great rock art content. Thanks again, Alan. See you you next week on the Flip Flop. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.